You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. So now please stand with me in reading Acts 13, 16-33. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of, his, of this people, Israel, chose your fathers, chose our fathers, and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me is one coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understood the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news, that what God promised to the fathers... This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. This is the word of the Lord. Our Old Testament reading is in the end of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 24, 25. Second Samuel 24, verse 25. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. So, Father, you have given us stories. So now as we take up this book, as we begin to study this book, to listen to this book, to sing in the light of this book, to worship in the light of this book, to understand your sovereign guidance of history, such that you raise up kings and put them down. You raise up kingdoms and you put them down. You 
um, build temples in the places of tabernacles. Um, God, as we consider your actions, Lord, I pray that you would move us to worship, to obey, to marvel at your promises and at your actions in history. Bless, O God, the reading of Samuel. Bless, O God, the preaching of Samuel. And bless, O God, our hearing of Samuel. In your name we pray, amen. Uh, We start today um, a journey, a study of the book of 1st and 2nd Samuel. Um, This is going to be a wonderfully long journey, Um, and uh, and we get to step into a place in Scripture that um, for many of us who grew up in the church and grew up around Sunday school classes and flannel grams and all of that stuff, uh, we love this place. I mean, there are a few, um, there are a few places in Scripture where there are more well-known stories and, and perhaps uh, some of the best-known stories of all with King David um, fighting Goliath. Um, like, we get to step into the book of Samuel. And what I wanted us to do this week, um, prior to actually turning to chapter 1 next week, is I wanted to set a framework for us uh, of what it is that we should be looking for. Um, that there is kind of a, 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 an overarching theme, a set of themes actually, um, that, that, that run through the whole of First and Second Samuel. And my prayer and my hope um, for us this week is that we would learn how to listen to this book. Um, we uh, have spent a lot of time as a church in the Gospels. We've spent a lot of time as a church in Paul's letters, particularly the book of Romans. We, we've um, been to all of these places, but we have um, not yet stepped into um, the stories of the Old Testament. And, um, and so I think it takes a bit of learning um, when it comes to these stories. How should we listen to them? Um, how should we respond to them? How uh, should, what should we learn as we work our way through First and Second Samuel? And so I want to begin with just the, the glorious assertion that, that as we turn to First and Second Samuel, As we read the words on this page, as we hear these stories, we're reading the words of God. That God has decided that that one of the things that should shape the life of the Christian church and one of the things that should be foundational to how we understand our mission, our life, our identity, um, how God himself is revealed to us um, is not just through propositions, not through systematic theologies, not even just in songs, say in the Psalms, or proverbial wisdom, as you find in James and Proverbs. Um, But he wants to reveal himself to us and actually reveal who we are to ourselves um, as he tells us stories. He tells us stories that are true, stories um, of how he's unfolded and, and, and worked sovereignly through history. He not only tells us the, the facts of what, what has taken place, he interprets that facts, those facts for us. He, he tells us the meaning of those stories. Like, what is it that we're supposed to learn from this? Um, and, and, and so, as we listen to the, the, the book of Samuel, as you read it, and I would encourage you, um, all of you, uh, over the course of the next 18 months or so, um, that, that you would be reading and rereading and rereading First and Second Samuel, learning to listen to these stories I'm learning to see these stories. And when we step into um, particular moments in the narrative, that, that my prayer would be that people in this room would already know what's about to happen. 
Um, that when we begin to sing um, different psalms at the beginning of our gatherings each week, you would know um, and be able to associate the psalms that we're singing here on a Sunday with, with stories from the life of David. So the first thing I want us to establish is that we come to this book above everything else to see and know our God. We confess and believe that he has spoken. That he's spoken to us stories, true stories, in which he intends for us to know who he is and how he acts and what he is actually doing in history, to understand better what he's doing in our own lives, to understand what he's doing in this particular moment in history. We go to First and Second Samuel to sit the feet of our Lord and our King as he tells us the stories of what he has done. And so as we step into Samuel, I want to kind of set up for us first the history of what's going on in Samuel. Um, it, it's, uh, I think, helpful to understand the timeline uh, of what's unfolding over the course of these two books, um, how it fits with um, the rest of the history that we find in the Old Testament. Um, and then from there, I want to kind of draw out for us three primary themes um, that I hope will shape our understanding of what God is up to um, in this book. Th- things that you can kind of grab hold of and look for um, as we listen to First and Second Samuel. So here's the first thing. As we look at First and Second Samuel, um, it encompasses approximately 125, 130 years of history. Um, and so this, uh, we will almost be in the book as long as, um, the, just joking, um, <laughs> as long as this history entails. So, so when we step into Samuel, Samuel's telling us about um, a, a relatively actually small window of history um, in the history of Israel. Now, here's the thing about those particular 130 years. Um, they are arguably the most pivotal outside of the coming of Christ, um, outside of Israel being sent into exile. Um, they are arguably the most central kind of uh, definitive moments in, in God's transformation of what it means to be his covenant people um, takes place in these 130 years. In other words, um, the, the, these two, this one book, um, which we just have a part one and a part two to, um, actually presents us with something that's not just kind of a random bit of history with some cool stories in it. Like somebody said, you know what, this history kind of written up would be a good, I bet it'd be a bestseller. Um, they're actually, it's important that we find this text in the Bible. In other words, um, that God's given it to us, and one of the reasons he's given it to us is um, to understand who the covenant people of God are. In other words, to understand who we are, um, these, th- this particular century plus a couple decades um, is for us central to our own self-understanding. It's central to understanding what God's actually up to, and not, not just in David's age, in Saul and Samuel's age, but in our own. Um, it tells us, it gives us um, e- even a blueprint of the kind of world that God is actually building through the son of David, Jesus. Um, and so uh, those 130 years are given to us in this book because they are really, really important. They're vital, they're central. Um, to kind of understand where Samuel fits with the rest of, of the Bible, um, you, could, you, you need to know from the book of Judges, everybody knows the story of Samson. Scandalous story. Can't tell your children that story. Um, uh, S- Samson and Samuel would have been contemporaries. 
Um, so they've been living about the same time. So that when you go to the book of Judges, um, you kind of understand, um, actually gives us a, a pretty clear and desolate picture of the state of Israel um, at the, that, we, that we find at the beginning of 1 Samuel. If you know the story of the book of Judges, um, what you find is Israel is uh, in a place where they're, they're not, they, they, it's hard to even consider them a nation. It's like a, um, a scattered group of tribes um, where God kind of anoints judges, gives authority to judges um, who will speak on behalf of God, who will judge cases, who um, essentially try to um, keep the peace, keep justice um, in play uh, over the course of those 12 tribes. Um, what, that, um, what was weak about that particular structure, it was um, because there was no um, centralized kind of self-understanding of the people of Israel, um, it was very, very easy for idolatry, um, for paganism, um, for the worship of false gods to kind of creep into um, and, and to begin to transform and corrupt um, those cultures within those various tribes. And so generally there's a pattern, a cycle that repeats itself over and over and over again in the book of Judges um, that then leads into the, the position that you find, um, we, we find Israel in at the beginning of 1 Samuel. And that, um, that cycle that repeats itself is uh, the people of God, the 12 tribes of Israel begin to worship um, pagan gods, false gods. They would begin to turn away and not um, uh, faithfully worship Yahweh. They would neglect um, worshiping at the tabernacle. They would neglect the law of God. They would neglect the sacrifices, the Sabbath, um, all the commands of God. Um, as they turn away from God, God then would um, release the Philistines onto them um, to oppress them, to tax them, to kill them. Um, and, and, and so you find this cycle where Israel disobeys God, turns away from God, um, then they find themselves overrun by the enemies of God, uh, overrun by their enemies, um, overrun by uh, those who serve the false gods, uh, being handed over in, in some way, Israel is, um, to those pagan gods, to those false gods. Um, then Israel in that condition would cry out to God um, for his mercy, cry out that he would rescue them. He would then raise up a judge who would then lead them in battle um, against their oppressors, against their enemies, um, and they would be released from their enemies. And that cycle just happens over and over and over again. It's kind of like this um, same season. It's like a different season of the same television show where the same thing happens every season. Like, oh, here they go again. False gods. They're going to be overrun by pagans. They're overrun by pagans. They cry out to God. God raises up a judge. Judges were interesting. In the way that they rescued Israel, um, that's kind of the best part of Judges. You have Samson using a, a jawbone, um, which is awesome. It should be a great movie. Um, but that just repeats itself over and over and over again in the book of Judges. And then you arrive at the end of the book of Judges. So remember, Samuel comes very early to us in the book of Samuel. And Samson is a contemporary of Samuel's. And where the book of Judges leaves us is with this statement. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So when we open the story in the book of Samuel, we find a people not united under a king. We find a people, in fact, we're going to look in 1 Samuel and the high priest is confused by someone coming to the tabernacle to pray. 
which doesn't speak highly of how often people were praying. But do we find a, a, a people who just a, a little bit before had been rescued by God in dramatic fashion out of Egypt, who'd been led through the wilderness, who God had fought for them in conquering the Canaanites and establishing them in the land. And here's a people who does what is right in their own eyes. They do not submit to God's law. They don't listen to the word of the Lord. They don't gather in his presence for worship. They just live how they want to live. They do what they want to do. And the image we arrive in in 1 Samuel is is very, very dark. It's bleak. It's painful. Um, One of the themes that that is going to underlie um, our reading of Samuel is this transition that, that unfolds for us through these two books from barrenness to fruitfulness. The book is going to open and kind of fix our gaze on a woman named Hannah. Um, Hannah is barren. She can't have children. And this transformation, um, she she actually begins, the book begins with her as a symbol of all of Israel. They're barren. They're fruitless. There is no um, glory of God in their midst. Like God, um, uh, the prayer and the worship of Yahweh um, seems to have all but departed from Israel altogether. Um, the, um, the, the tabernacle itself is, is led by Eli's corrupt and wicked sons. Um, um, and very few people even come to pray or bring sacrifices in the presence uh, of God, such that um, Hannah is believed, uh, Eli believes Hannah is drunk um, as she comes to pray. Like, obviously, the only reason you would pray is because you had too much to drink. Um, like, this is the state that we find Israel in. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes, and how true that is today. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Like, even among the people of God in our day, such resistance to the commands of God, the good, by the way, good and gracious commands of God, There's such resistance to seeing the world as God defines it and describes it. That that even among Christians in churches, um, that there is this kind of antinomian spirit, this unwillingness um, that God would ever command, that God would ever direct, that God would ever tell us, like, hey, here's the way to raise your children. Here's the, the framework and the way that marriage should function and work. Here's what you should do with your money. Here's what you can do on the Sabbath and not do on the Sabbath. That, that we would ever be confronted with direct commands from God. There is such in our day a resistance to these things because there is foundationally in the culture in which we live a commitment that everyone should do what is right in their own eyes. And this is how Judges describes a bleak and dark and disintegrating culture. Where there is no king, there is no authority, there is no standard of what is good and beautiful and true. There's just everyone doing whatever they want. And and the sign, what, what what that brings to bear is... A nation, a culture, a church that is barren. 
that cannot bear the fruit it was designed and made and created by God to bear for the world and for the glory of God. So the first theme that we're going to see is the book opens for us the story of Hannah, Samuel's mother. It is a desolate and corrupt tabernacle, a desolate and corrupt people who refuse to acknowledge God, who refuse to acknowledge the Lord's authority. The worship of him has grown corrupt, immoral. And what God will do over the course of the, of the next, well, for us, 18 months, but over the course of the next 125 years in this book is take Israel um, and, and not, not as ultimately a way of kind of like, hey, I'm going to defy the brokenness that's here. But he actually begins to work through and with um, the, the desolateness of Israel to destroy an old age and bring about a new one. One marked by life, one marked by where worship itself is renewed, where the people of God um, gain a a completely different understanding of what it means to be the people of God in the midst of the world, um, and where um, they begin to bear a, a, a kind of beautiful and glorious fruit, or at least the hints of fruitfulness in the midst of the world. At foundation, like one of the things that we're going to see in the book of Samuel is this progression, this story, this, this profoundly beautiful story of a God who um, wields, actually wields the sinfulness of people to accomplish beautiful and good and glorious ends. But we're going to see at the heart of Samuel is God who will take a woman in the midst of her barrenness and fruitlessness, in the midst of her despair, and he will answer those prayers in ways that will reverberate and transform everything for Israel and for the world. In other words, we're going to see a God um, who loves in the midst of history to, to, to display the fact that he can make barren places bear fruit. Fruit that feeds the nations. Second theme we're going to see is this transition in, in, in terms of how Israel is governed. Um, uh, there, there's actually a, an excellent book on the book of Samuel called The Beginning of Politics. And what we're going to see is this transition, as this transition kind of unfolds from Samuel to Saul to David, as it begins with a prophetic judge, um, one who rules and brings judgments to Israel, and he speaks with the authority of God. He speaks the word of God. One of the most um, beautiful kind of life and hope-filled moments in Samuel is going to happen as um, the word of the Lord appears again in the land of Israel. And that's going to happen early. Don't worry. It's going to be dark. And then all of a sudden there's going to be this glorious like, moment of hope where the word of the Lord appears again through the ministry of Samuel. And so the, the book begins um, with uh, the coming of a prophetic judge, a judge who governs um, a political figure who speaks the words of God. That then is going to transition to a king. That's going to be one of the major developments that we see kind of unfolding in the book of Samuel as it goes from this kind of scattered tribes, um, quasi-governed by these judges that God raises up, um, to a kingdom, 
um, ruled by a king. And so um, it moves from Samuel to the anointing of Saul, who is a king who prophesies. And so he's first and foremost a political figure, but he's a political figure um, that, that is visited by the Spirit of God um, and prophesies. But then that transitions to David himself, a man after God's own choosing, um, as opposed to Saul being um, the, the, people, the, the king that the people would choose. Um, but rather, David comes and is a prophetic king. Here is um, uh, ultimately the, the completion of that transition as we go from a prophetic judge, one who speaks the words of God, to a king now, uniting the people of God and declaring the words of God. And so there is a transition from a prophetic judge to a king who prophesies to a prophetic king who conquers God's enemies and restores the worship of God's people. Um, one, of the, one of the controversies that comes up in the book of Kings or the book of Samuel um, is, is that you find uh, very clearly as Israel comes to Samuel and demands of him um, that they receive a king. Um, that there's this, this tension because you find in the book of Deuteronomy, clearly God's intention for Israel was that they would one day have a king. Um, you also have uh, all of the language used around David, David being um, the forerunner, the first type of the coming of Jesus. Um, Jesus is the son of David, the true son of David. Um, and, so, and then you also have um, Israel clearly being told that they're sinning. They're, they're doing an evil thing um, as they demand a king. So, so one of the things that we have to reconcile as we work our way through Samuel is, um, how does that work? What was the nature of Israel's sin? Like if God had um, promised and said and, and embedded in their um, earliest documents that, hey, there will one day come a king, a king who will rule over you, um, then why was it a sin for them to then ask for a king? Um, as Samuel very, very clearly accuses them of, and God uh, confirms that accusation. And, and I think here's, here's the thing that we're going to see. Like one of the fundamental contrast in the book that we're supposed to see and make is um, the difference between Saul and his son Jonathan and Saul and his quasi-son David. Um, and, and the contrast we're supposed to see, at least if we're to take serious um, kind of the primary difference laid out for us in, in describing these two kings is um, Saul is a man who's easy to look at. He asserts a kind of royal presence. The language in Saul um, in Samuel harkens back to, reminds us of um, the fruit that looked like it was good for food in the garden. Whereas David is a man after God's own heart. Now, um, I grew up learning that David being a man after God's own heart means that David was like a particularly good man. That's actually not the meaning of the language there. The meaning of the language, to, to say that David is a man after God's own heart is to say that David is the kind of man that God would choose. That God's heart was set on David versus Saul being a man that um, the people wanted. And the people's demand for a king that, that is called sin, um, you'll notice the phrase that's used is that they demanded a king like the other nations. Um, their, their, their sin is not in wanting a king. Their sin is wanting a king like the other nations have a king. Their sin is how they wanted a king, what kind of king they desired. And that will come back and be a real problem for them. Also, you see this transition between Saul and David, the king who prophesies, versus the prophetic king who conquers. Um, one of the most poignant and important things that we're going to see 
is the nature of their repentance. What we're going to find is both of these kings sin. Like the, the beauty of David is, is not his sinlessness. It's not his overt, perfect obedience to the law of God. In fact, in, in many ways, David's sin is far, far worse than Saul's sin. Saul presumes um, to, to bring sacrifices to Yahweh. Um, he is, uh, in many ways, when we get to that story, we're going to be faced with um, the reality that at the end of the day, like Saul is ultimately punished for trying to worship God. It's going to be a wonderful week. <laughs> um, whereas David, David faces um, judgment for his sin because he um, commits adultery and has a, a man, a very loyal man, murdered. So if you just look out on paper and say, like, hey, what's the difference between these guys? David is way, way, way worse. But what's different ultimately about Saul and David is how they respond to the word of the Lord when it comes to them. When the word of God's judgment comes to them, Saul doubles down. When the word of God's judgment comes to David, he mourns, he confesses his sin, and he repents. He comes to God as his judge and his king, the one who has all authority. So we're going to see a contrast between Saul and David. And at the heart of it is not going to be that one was sinless and the other was sinful. It's that they're both sinful. But what they did with their sin makes all the difference in the world. And so it is today, by the way. Like we, we are welcomed into the presence of God We're called children of God, not because we're sinless. Not because you did enough this week. Moms, it's not because you were good enough mom this week. Um, Fathers, it's not because you were um, a good enough, attentive enough father. Um, It wasn't because you achieved great things in your professional life. Um, We are welcomed into the presence of God on the basis of the work of Jesus. And therefore, the only thing that, that, that stands between you and God is repentance. The only difference between David and Saul is when David hears the judgment of God against his sin, he says, yes, and I'm sorry, I repent. Saul doubles down. This theme will be central, this transition from a judge and a scattered nation to a kingdom ruled by a prophetic king who accepts and submits to the word of God and speaks the word of God to his people. And then third, we're going to see this transition, which is unbelievable. (laughs) This transition from a broken and corrupt tabernacle, which symbolized God's wandering with his people on the earth, to the establishment of a temple, a temple that, that... we, we know from the prophets and we see throughout the, book, um, throughout the whole of the New Testament uh, a temple that's established in one place but will fill all places. And so we have this, um, we, we, God himself begins to transform how he interacts with the peoples of the earth um, as he um, quits becoming just this God who lives in a tent who accompanies his people wherever they go and it becomes a God who establishes a house establishes a family, establishes a place by which people may commune with him, um, and he promises and begins to build that house such that that house will touch every corner of the earth where the whole earth will be his. 
See, the book of Samuel, in the end, it's not ultimately about Saul and David and Samuel. It's not ultimately about Goliath. It's not ultimately about all of these um, uh, stunning, disturbing, dark, and beautiful stories um, that unfold for us in the book of Samuel. At the heart of the whole book of Samuel is a story of what God, the God of the universe, the God who redeemed Israel out of Egypt, the God who has rescued us through the work of Jesus, the God who sovereignly reigns over all things, how it is that he intends um, to, to call to himself a son, a son who will build a house, and a house that will fill the world and be filled with the nations. The book of Samuel is ultimately about God. It's ultimately a, a revelation to us of what God himself is doing even now. A thing that began a long time ago. We get to read the origin story of what God is actually up to in and through his son, Jesus, the son of David, the one who is even now building us as his living house made of living stones to be filled with the glory of God, to be um, in every place among all the nations, a house that will fill up all things. This is Samuel. And my prayer for us is that we would see the beginnings of fruitfulness. That they begin with a barren woman on her face pleading with God. Bring judgment against Israel's enemies. To bring life and faithfulness again to her people. That we'd see at the heart of this story the movement of what real repentance is, what it is that reconciles us to God. It is not your own efforts. It is not your own successes. It's not even your own worship. It is ultimately a heart that repents of our sin in the face of God's law and trusts in his gracious and kind mercy. My prayer and my hope is that you will see in the midst of what appears to be darkness and rubble and barrenness and death. If you want a full picture of where things are, read the last two chapters of Judges. There's few darker places in all of the Bible. That out of that kind of brokenness, out of that kind of wickedness and evil and death, in the, in the face of that kind of rebellion among God's people, a people who refuse to submit to his law, refuse to listen to his word, but instead they do what is right in their own eyes. In the midst of all of that, God himself keeps his promises. He does what he wants to do. Which is a great irony, right? In the midst of a people doing whatever it is they want to do, God comes and accomplishes all that he wants to do. Last, you'd see that our hope lies in the coming of the son of David. The ultimate fulfillment of who David is for us. He is the one who finally conquers the enemies of God. He is the one who finally establishes and builds the temple of God. He is the ultimate, um, the, the, the one who comes as a sacrifice for our sins at the heart of that temple. He is the one that welcomes to himself all the nations of the earth, even as he conquers all the nations of the earth, and they're brought into his temple, into the presence of the living God. So God has given us stories. May we listen to them. 
in listening, may we marvel at them. May we see the, the good work of a good God and worship in the light of the stories God tells us. Let's pray and prepare for communion.